We are talking about something that is happening in the city of Surrey. As you've been hearing on the news in a 5-4 vote, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum and his four Safe Surrey Coalition councillors have passed an amendment to the election signage bylaw. Maybe it doesn't sound like a huge deal, but this is an amendment that would make it illegal to have political signs on private lawns until two weeks before a set vote. Earlier today on the Mike Smith Show, we heard from former Mayor Diane Watts, who said this about the change. As long as there's signs on private property, they, the bylaw officers cannot, uh, cannot take them down. Is that really the case, though? Joining me now is Ivan Scott, the Keep the RCMP in Surrey spokesperson. Ivan, thank you so much for being with us. Jill, thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate that. So what is your reaction to this amendment to not allow election signs? And this isn't just provincial election or uh, municipal elections. This, looking at the bylaw amendment that was before Surrey Council, it includes referenda, plebiscites, and recall petitions. Well, the immediate reaction of us is that uh, everyone we have spoken to today, including ourselves, and the is one of complete outrage and disbelief, uh, Janet. Um, and um, sorry, and uh, it's it, it, it's unbelievable how McCallum has the temerity to interfere and play with our democracy as he does by doing something like this. And we believe it flies in the face of guaranteed Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and is totally unacceptable. And as uh, Diane Watts said over there, this is just an infringement of our rights and. Totally, something totally unacceptable to anybody in Canada, never, never, nevertheless, even people here in Surrey. Uh, do you think that this was specifically brought in to try and silence your group? Of course. There's no doubt about that. You know, we've been, we've been vocal against uh, McCallum's idea to bring in the, uh, the, the Surrey Police Force and keep the RCMP in, in, uh, in, in Surrey now for the last uh, two and a half years. And uh, he has tried to shut me down at any opportunity that he can. And every now and again, he brings up something like this, which he believes will uh, bully us and change us and make us uh, change our course. And it's definitely not going to happen. He takes every opportunity to attack me and my, uh, and my organization. I understand you've either hired a lawyer or you are getting legal advice on this. Are we getting legal advice on this? And there's no doubt that we'll be, we'll be hiring somebody to, to take this further uh, we don't believe that there's a, any court in the land will, that will uphold this type of uh, undemocratic uh, that works that he's putting out there. Uh, because I know there was a lawyer, I think, was uh, speaking with Jazz Johal on his show yesterday, even before this vote took place, saying the city of Vaughan tried to do a similar thing and it was shot down. It was it said, you can't actually do that. You can't tell people when they can put signs on their own private property. Uh, are you confident that that will also be the outcome here? Well, if that's the precedent, then uh, then if the precedents work, then precedent is fine. But I'm sure that we we won't have to use the precedent because uh, it's the wrong thing to do, and it's it's proven basically we will prove that it's absolutely a stupid thing to uh, try to enact. Uh, I, when I was a reporter with Global, I do recall being at your house to do an interview with you. And if I'm remembering it correctly, there was a sign at the front. I don't know if it was right on the yard. I'm remembering something closer to the front door saying, uh, keep the RCMP in Surrey. So is it is it your understanding then, given this amendment passing at Surrey Council, that sign is now technically illegal? 
Uh, I'm not too sure when it cuts, uh, kicks in. I think it's 24 hours. So for the next 24 hours, I think it's not illegal. But then, according to uh, McCallum, it is illegal. Uh, but that is the that is the sign. Yes, that you're talking about. How many signs would you say there are right now in the city of Surrey? The the keep the RCMP in Surrey signs on people's yards. Well, we we estimate that there's about 7,000 of these signs uh, spread all the way around uh, the city of Surrey. And during that time that we've sort of put it out there, they've been uh, defaced, some of them have been pinched, etc. But uh, people have have not been uh, demoralized or not been intimidated and keep them them right out there in front and centre. Uh, some people have been tweeting or responding on social media on this saying um, time to put the signs in windows and put them on cars and put them elsewhere. Is it your understanding that that would still be allowed? Not, I, I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous that a council is telling people what they can and can't put on their yards. But is it your understanding it would be allowed to display the signs that way? <laughs> Still a leading question. Uh, yes, of course, uh, we, we would not hesitate to keep them there and encourage people to put any signs that they like inside their windows on their cars. I mean, we have car flags out there. Now, is that going to be illegal as well, to have car flags? So uh, you know, we don't believe that the signs will have to be taken down. I think that the, uh, the bylaw people will be hard-pressed uh, to come around and, and force everybody and, and uh, give them fines. I don't know if people will accept the fines or accept that sort of thing, but that's, that's up to them. But, uh, no, I, I'm not moving my signs. And what happens if a bylaw officer comes to your door? I will greet him nicely and say, what would he like? And he'll say, I want you to take your sign down. And I'll say, I respectively decline your kind offer for me to remove my sign. Uh, Do you have any uh, indication? uh, I know you said you are getting legal advice on this. So what is your your next official step uh, to try and fight this amendment? Well, we'll we'll take a little time to to do it, uh, Jill, because it you know we, we will be we will be looking at hard and, and and getting a lot of advice and, and counsel from people, and uh, so we do this thing absolutely right, and you know it, it's it's just something that that needs to be done. This man has to be stopped in his tracks because he's. He's uh, in the process of uh, taking democratic rights away from anybody. And anybody that opposes him to anything that he does, he thinks he can bully them by bringing in bylaws and stuff that have got a five to four majority always. And uh, the the other four councillors, their views don't count just purely because he has the majority. And so he's leaving out at least... Uh, what four ninths or four eighths of four ninths of the uh, of the population and ignoring them and just doing what he likes. I would imagine, though, too, under this, uh, hypothetically speaking, and I don't know if there are any of these signs, but if people had "We Love the Surrey Police Force" signs on their front yards, those would have to come down under this bylaw amendment as well. <laughs> I've never seen one of those. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even talk to it. Yeah, I presume so. I doubt it, though. All right. Well, we will definitely be uh, keeping tabs on this and, and looking for updates on this. Ivan Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, the B.C. government is selling this as a way to strengthen access to information and to protect people's privacy. But there are a lot of opinions on that and a lot of people saying, wait a minute, that's not exactly what's happening here. Talking about the proposal to bring in a $25 fee for applications made under the Freedom of Information Act. That would mean B.C. would go from being a province where there is no fee to having... uh, tied, being tied with the highest fee 
in all of Canada, with all of the, in Canada, when we look at the Canadian provinces. And even if you're somebody that doesn't make freedom of information requests, there's a good chance you've read a story that has come from that, or you've been made aware of something that was not released by the government that was only released because someone made a freedom of information request. Well, joining me to talk more about this and the government bill that would add that $25 fee is BC's Privacy Commissioner, Michael McAvoy. Michael McAvoy is on the line with me now, and thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. This might be something that a lot of people listening, a lot of British Columbians have never used the FOI system or have reason to, but it is a big deal when talking about people who do file freedom of information requests. What is your response to the the new Democrat government bringing in a $25 fee for these requests? Well, I'm concerned about it. I'm very concerned about it because we live in a time when people are seeking uh, more answers from their government, more accountability from their government, particularly as we go through uh, COVID. And so any measures which diminish that accountability and transparency are not steps in the right direction. And our freedom of information system is really fundamental to how we operate in a democracy. Um, The government holds the people's information. And people have a right to that information subject to very certain narrow exceptions. Now the government turns around and says, well, yes, it's your information, but now we're going to charge you for it. Uh, You you can imagine that this is going to act as a barrier uh, to accountability. And it's going to act as a barrier to people uh, making requests for uh, information, whether it's about, you know, how their children are being treated in the school system. Uh, to what's going on in your neighborhood with your uh, municipal government, to the provincial government making really important decisions about you and I, uh, all of that can only we can only hold them to account uh, by getting information about them and the records that they hold. And that's why the access to information system is so important and why it needs to be as accountable and transparent and uh, frictionless as possible. The uh, Citizen Services Minister, Lisa Baer, yesterday uh, said to reporters said that this is a modest application fee in line with what's uh, being what's happening in other jurisdictions and that it will not be a barrier. How do you respond to that? Well, half the jurisdictions in Canada that have access to information have no fees. British Columbia is one of those. Of those that have fees, the most that any jurisdiction charges is $25.00. And so what this government is proposing to do is go from charging the people for their own information, uh, no charges for that, to at the very high end of what's happening in the rest of Canada. You know, $25 uh, may seem like not much or it may seem like a lot to some people. But if somebody is doing, uh, a journalist or somebody's doing uh, information requests about, so for example, health matters, we have to go to several health authorities. Ministry of Health, a whole number of other bodies, that $25 per fee fee begins to add up uh, at a certain point and acts as a barrier to access. Uh, And can you talk a bit about another change uh, that I I was reading about this, that in the past or or leading up to this, you would have been able to, or the office would have been able to waive fees, but this is different in that this fee can't be waived? That is correct. So the application fee that... uh, government would allow themselves to charge is not something that would be subject to 
to my ability to waive. So now as it is, uh, if you make a request to a public body and uh, it takes more than three hours to do that search, public bodies can uh, levy a fee for that where it takes a, a considerable length of time. But if that uh, request is in the public interest, it, it's generating information that many, many citizens are concerned about, uh, I have the ability to waive charges that a public body would put on an individual or a journalist because it's uh, for the larger betterment of, of our society. Uh, that is not something that they're going to permit with this application fee. They are not going to allow me in circumstances where it might be in the public interest to do so to waive those fees. And that's, that's just, uh, there shouldn't be a fee in the first place uh, to begin with, but uh, if there is, there should be an ability to waive it in circumstances that are justifiable. Exactly. Um, it all it also brings in to question the number of fees, and the current government had said there was a backlog in in processing FOI because the opposition, the BC Liberals, file so many requests. Uh, there's one particular journalist in BC who also files, I think, more requests than other media outlets all put together. Could there not be a better way to to deal with that? If that is in fact the case, then why not bring in some kind of structure that, after say. 10 requests, maybe there's a nominal fee or something, if what they're trying to do is to cut down on what they think is perhaps abuse of the system, although that's not been proven, is there not a better way to go about dealing with that? Well, one thing that has to be kept in mind is there's provisions in the Act now uh, that allow a public body to disregard requests where there's an abuse of the system. And that happens when they come to my office and they ask me to examine it. And if indeed it is uh, an abuse of the system, uh, then those requests can be disregarded. You know, we can't be making systems and laws about one person or the opposition, for example. It is the opposition's job to hold the government to account. Uh, Whatever, you know, one thinks about this, we live in a democracy, and uh, whatever the opposition party is or opposition parties are, Their job is to hold the government to account. One of the key ways to do that is to understand what the government is doing by getting records about uh, how policy decisions are being made, about how decisions about laws are being made. And so that adds to uh, transparency. It adds to accountability. And freedom of information plays a critical, critical role in that process. And so uh, to put in place any system which is going to uh, diminish or put in place and barriers that are going to, like fees, or uh, the government has now uh, put itself in a place where they're proposing that there's no obligation to create certain records. They've, been, they've also expanded the grounds for refusing a, a request uh, from an applicant. So these are not steps in the right direction and do not add to the accountability of government uh, at a time when the public is really uh, seeking more accountability and more answers. Uh, is there not uh, a certain bitter irony as well? If, Like you said, it is the opposition's job to hold the government to account, and a lot of that is done through FOI. When the current B.C. government, or when the New Democratic Party was in opposition, uh, they stood up for these laws and talked about how important FOI was. That's what the record uh, absolutely indicates. And, of course, the opposition of the day back a few years ago used the laws that are in place now to uh, obtain information about government. Look, this is an issue uh, that does not have uh, any partisan uh, 
sentiments attached to it. I mean, as long as I've been around for a number of years in this field, uh, uh, governments of all stripes really don't care very much for um, really rigorous and robust uh, access laws. Um, it's it sometimes is uncomfortable to be held to account for uh, your actions. And I completely understand that. But that's the reason we have the system in place as we do. Uh, it creates um, all kinds of obligations that require public bodies to be accountable to those people, us, the public, that they serve. And that's what should happen in this law as being proposed, as improvements should be made to ensure that accountability and the answers that we seek um, as, as members of the public, uh, that that interest is served. And that should be, uh, over, you know, that should be the government's approach to this. And Michael, just before I let you go, you are the privacy commissioner. So I think people might make the assumption that any decision like this would be made after consulting with you or at least having a conversation. Were you consulted in this before the decision was made? I was. And government, um, to their credit, uh, has uh, consulted us on a range of issues, including this law. Um, I think uh, it's obviously apparent we don't talk about uh, the consultations as they occur. But I think it's apparent that uh, my office's view of these proposals, there are some, and there are some positive things in here, uh, but my view of other proposals, particularly around access, are matters of concern. And I think the government should reconsider uh, as we get into the debate in the legislature and as our, our elected representatives uh, consider this bill. All right. That kind of answers uh, my last question is, is what can people do is if there is going to be opposition to this and people uh, pleading with the government to not go ahead and bring in this twenty five dollar fee. But do you think it's a done deal? I don't think it's a done deal at all. I think that's uh, the reason that we have a democratic system and that's the reason we have public debate and uh, the public will make its voice known through its uh, elected members of the legislature. And uh, I, I look forward to being a part of that debate. It's, it's really important. And it's, access to information is one of the fundamental underpinnings of um, our democratic discourse in this province. And it's important that it be as robust and uh, as vigorous as possible so that we can continue to have these debates and, and ensure that government are, are making decisions that uh, are going to uh, support and benefit all of us. All right. So we'll leave it there for today. Michael McAvoy, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome, Jill. Thanks for being with us. And a warning, this story has some very disturbing details in it. We won't go into all of the details, but it does have to do with a beloved pet that did not survive a flight. And joining me to talk more about what happened and where things are with this situation now is Rebecca Bretter, who is an animal lawyer with Bretter Law. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. I know the details of this case can can be quite gruesome, will be disturbing to mm-hmm. a lot of people, but we will still tell people what happened. And this was the case of a woman who was spending some time teaching English in China, coming home, sending her dogs home first, and one of the dogs did not survive. Yes, that's right. It's a really sad story. So the woman's name is Monique. And her dog who died uh, was was Maverick. Monique was living in China for a few years, teaching English, and she had two dogs, Maverick and and Coco, who were best friends, and they really were her family. She was missing her 
human family out here in Canada a lot, and she had uh, Maverick and, and Coco keeping her company in China while she was working. And so she was planning to come back, and she wanted to send her two dogs back uh, to Vancouver before she came here. And her mom, Doris, was was planning to go pick them up at the airport, and and that's what happened. The dogs so uh, flew from Wanzhou, China, to to Vancouver, and Doris, Monique's mom, was waiting at the airport for there was they were supposed to be there by ten in the morning, and and she knew that the flight landed. And by two o'clock or something, a few hours later, she still she hasn't heard anything from the airline. She's wondering what's going on. She's trying to get follow-ups from the airline. Finally, um, manager from China Southern Airlines comes, and he says that one of the dogs was dead upon arrival, which was a complete shock to her. And he ended up bringing um, both dogs, one dog, Coco, who was alive, and, and Maverick, the one who died, unfortunately, to her, Maverick was still in his crate. Uh, I won't go into all the details about how gruesome the, it was when Doris actually saw the dead dog in the crate. I mean, I'm still haunted. I just saw the pictures. I didn't actually experience it myself, but I'm still haunted by by the pictures. To just generally describe, it is very, very clear that Maverick was desperately trying to escape from his crate in the airplane. And, um, I mean, there was blood in the crate, all over the front of the crate. The the slats of the crates were, it looked like he was trying to open them, like they were bent, he was trying to get out, and, and more, more details that I'll spare you of. But it was just, and just the way the airline dealt with it, they were not apologetic, or they were sincerely apologetic. Uh, Monique has been trying to get answers from the airline. How did this happen? What was the temperature? What was the air pressure like? Did the pilot even know that the dogs were in a certain part of the cargo? We think, so we don't have any of these answers. What we do know is that it looks like the dogs were separated at some point uh, during the flight. And what we think happened is that the dog who survived um, was in the proper part of the cargo but Maverick, who unfortunately died, he was put in part of the cargo that where the air pressure wasn't good, nor was the temperature. It was either too hot or too cold. And that the pilot did not know that Maverick was there. There must have been, we think there was some kind of miscommunication between the handlers of the animals and the pilot. And that the pilot didn't turn on whatever he needed to turn on to make sure that there was proper temperature and, and air pressure. And so really, I mean, this we're at the very beginning stages. Um, we're considering our legal options. And and uh, what we really ultimately want, this is not about money. I mean, it, my clients who retain me, generally speaking, do not retain me because they're looking for money. They're looking for justice, as is Monique in this case. She wants, first of all, a sincere apology and and probably more importantly, an assurance that nothing like this ever happens again. And what I mean by that, it's not just lip service. I want to see written guidelines or written policy by China Southern Airlines to see how they handle companion animals that during transport. And not only do I want to see the written guidelines or written policies, I want to see what kind of training all handlers of companion animals have uh, right before they're loaded during the flight and, and after the flight, once it lands. 
because what happened here is just completely unacceptable. And still not knowing exactly, like you said, it's it's unclear at this point if there was an issue with the air pressure, if it was temperature, what mm-hmm. happened in this particular case. But do you think this shines a light on uh, kind of what you just touched on there is, and anybody that's flown with a dog in cargo knows it can be very stressful, but does it does it show that there needs to be a more universal plan or or a checklist that so yeah. that that owners do know exactly uh, your dog is in this part of the plane here here is where the the dog is located and and then a checklist at least or the checks and balances are in place yeah absolutely i think there should be and unfortunately there isn't a, a canadian law that mandates um how companion animals are are to travel well, uh, actually sorry i shouldn't say that the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, there are uh, rules and regulations that um, that deal with the how animals are to be transported. But I would say that the enforcement of those is really lax. But what there is also is that there is IATA. IATA is the International, um, International Air Transportation Association and many airlines. It's basically an industry association and many airlines are members of this association and IATA has what's called the live animal uh, transport regulations or the live animal regulations. And, and airlines who are members or that are members of this association must follow these regulations. And, and part of those regulations is that the captain or the pilot must be advised of the location of, of the live cargo. Not I hate calling animals cargo, but that's what they refer to them as. And there has to be a communication between the, the, the flight crew and, and basically the, the, the pilot they, they, so that the pilot can make sure that the right air pressure is on uh, and that the right temperature is, is ensured where, where the live animals are. So, so things like this already exist, but it's really up to the airlines to, to abide by those regulations because the reality is, is that if they don't, like in this case, IATA can't do much. The the most that it can do, which I've never seen happen, is that they could kick an airline out of its association. Right. So do you know if China Southern Airlines is part of that? They, they are. Right. They so are. They, they, they would have had that list of rules the same as any other airline in that to, to ensure the safety of this transport. Yes. Yes, absolutely. There's a form that they have to fill out that the crew, that the flight crew... Um, have to fill out or, or those handling the, the animals uh, before they're loaded on. So they're, according to IATA rules, they have to do that. Whether they did that or not, I don't know. And, and those are some of the questions that we have for them. You know, the bottom line is really, if what I tell people is if you really, if you don't have to fly with your animal, please don't. Or if you're lucky enough that your animal is small and you could bring them on the cabin, and it's one of the flights that allows that, then do that. But I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't, honestly, I just don't trust the system enough to, to put my own animals in there. But if you do, if you don't have a choice, then there are things that you could try to do. I mean, Monique tried to do that in this case. You could hire a pet moving company. They're, they're much more familiar with better airlines and some of their procedures. Um, on a practical side of things, do not sedate your animal. Uh, I know some people think that that may help their cat or dog because they're stressed out or they think they'll be stressed out and sedating them would be a good thing. But do not because there could be health complications and there's no one to check up on the animal, especially when they're in in the cargo part of the plane during the flight. So don't do that. And, And also... 
before you book anything, I would ask the airline to see what their written policy or guidelines are about handling companion animals. Don't fall for, oh, yeah, we care for your animals and we'll make sure that they're okay. Demand to actually see if they have a written policy. And if they do, you know, that tells me that they at least thought about the issue. So how much of this do you think comes down to, and again, uh, I'm not suggesting at all that your client uh, is to blame here, but there there mm-hmm. are a lot of things that, that, as you just mentioned, owners can do to make sure that if you do need to fly, and I mean, this is a particularly long flight as well. Uh, I've flown right. with my dog across uh, between Vancouver and Toronto many times, uh, but yeah. I know my one dog I would never put on a plane because I know he wouldn't handle it well and it would be right. absolutely horrific. My other dog, no problem. He gets on there right. and I've flown with Air Canada and they've always been I'll, I'll give them a huge shout out they've always been great and and they don't fly <laughs> at certain temperatures uh, they send me pictures he, he's on the tarmac he's in the plane now here he is you know they've been really wow. really good but that yeah. that is all because I've kind of been proactive in doing what you just said so how much of this comes to as an owner it's really up to you to make sure that you are doing the absolute best you can if you need to fly an animal there is, and there's only so much that you can do as well, because it really will depend on on how the airline and, and the staff, not even not just the airline, but the staff who are in charge that day, right? You it sounds like you were lucky those times, and that you got staff who who actually cared. In Monique's case, first of all, her Maverick and and boat dogs for that matter, they were used to flying. Hmm. It's not that it's not like this was their first flight, and she didn't have any idea how they would handle it. Maverick has flown a number of times before, and he was a healthy dog. This is what makes it such a, a tragedy, is that clearly something went wrong. It's not like she put a sick dog, you know, on an airplane and hoped for the best. He was healthy. He was young. He was only a couple of years old. Um, and and she she went through a pet travel agency to make sure that it will be handled properly, she asked the right questions. Well, she thought she thought she asked the right questions, you know, and then she left it up to her faith and trust in, in the system. And and ultimately it failed her. And it's just so right now it, we're at a point now where we're waiting to hear back from the airline again. We were demanding answers. We want to know what happened and and we want to see assurances what steps are going to take to ensure that something like this doesn't happen to anyone else again. All right. Well, it is definitely a a heartbreaking story and hopefully it will lead to some answers and at least letting people know or educating people on what they need to know uh, in these scenarios. Rebecca, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Jill. Well, as you heard, uh, just announced in today's COVID-19 briefing, the province is getting rid of capacity limits for indoor events. This is starting on October 25th. It applies to sporting events, concerts, movie theaters, and other indoor organized gatherings where the BC vaccination card is used. So the requirement to stay seated at a table when in a restaurant will also be lifted. However, masks will still be needed in those settings. We're still looking at restrictions in some regions in the province where there are more specific orders in place, talking about places such as Fraser Valley East and Northern Health. But again, the province is lifting those capacity limits for indoor events, sporting events, concerts, movie theaters, and other venues. So let's bring in Corinne Lee with the Rio Theatre, CEO of the Rio Theatre. Thank you so much for jumping on and joining us on the show. 
Thanks for having me. Uh, What is your response to this, the capacity limits going away so you can go back to full capacity? I've got goosebumps. Mm. (laughs) Honestly, when I was telling my staff, I got goosebumps because uh, we are in one of our busiest seasons already with it being Halloween Um, as a movie theater. uh, You know, scary Halloween movies are are always very popular. And um, yeah, to realize that we can increase our capacity, uh, double our capacity um, in the coming weeks is very exciting. But also it's going to be really busy. So we've got to, you know, deal with that. So so what has it been like then being at reduced capacity? Well, I mean, we were just happy to be open, to be honest. Like since uh, June 15th, um, you know, we do quite a good business, even with our 50% capacity. We have 420 seats at the Rio. And so 210 seats um, still allows us to operate. And, um, you know, we've been... uh, you know, functioning with that quite well. Um, This just is like another step to getting back to normal. And that's something that is very exciting for us. It's been over a year and a half where we have not been able to function um, as a normal business. And um, so that, yeah, it's it's kind of a relief in many ways to see that we've finally got here. Well, exactly. I know you and others in similar positions have been struggling, to say the least. Uh, I know, uh, linking back, it seems like it was so long ago, uh, you made the move kind of tongue-in-cheek to become a sports bar to stay open. It certainly has has not been an easy year and uh, plus however many months we are at now. Yeah, no, we struggled uh, so much in the last year and a half. The uncertainty of it, um, you know, we, we would have closures that would, were supposed to only last a couple of weeks. It would last months. Um, you know, it, it was very difficult uh, to get through it. Um, so I am ha- really happy to see that we're, we've moved forward with the vaccination passports. And that was a really good move to allow us to get back to this next step, which is full capacity. What do you think it's going to look like then when you you said in your venue, so going from the 50 percent at 210 seats, going back to full 420 seats? uh, Are you concerned at all about the lineups then and having to check everybody's vaccine card and ID coming in? Will that have an impact? It is actually a real problem um, because, you know, people don't show up our, you know, several hours before a show. Most people come, you know, within the hour to 30 30 minutes before a show starts, um, which, uh, you know, the amount of scanning and checking that everybody has to do to try to get everybody in um, is definitely an issue. I've had to increase my door staff. We've had to buy extra scanners, um, you know, things like that to try to streamline um, the process. I've been to a few places and it was clarified, I guess, uh, for restaurants at least, saying that it's not law that you have to scan. You couldn't do a, a, a just an eye scan and eyeball it saying, yes, the ID matches this vaccine card and let people in that way. Would you do a shift to that or are you? Because I know a lot of people also feel much more comfortable when the actual scan takes place. Yeah, we prefer to do the scan at the Rio because I do know um, there are people out there who have uh, have come up with all kinds of fake IDs. And I actually know friends of mine who've done this. I'm not saying any names. Uh, and so we at the Rio um, really want to make sure that it's a safe environment and we want to make sure that everybody's passes are legitimate. So um, we are sticking to the scanning process, uh, uh, st- sticking to scanning the passports as much as we possibly can. 
Uh, even though that will mean, I, I, and I get what you're saying too. And I've actually talked to so many people who, again, say they do feel safer exactly for that reason, because you don't know how many people are out there trying to, to game the system. But even though that, that could mean you're going to have to ask people to maybe come a bit earlier or be patient that there will be a bit of a wait to get in. Yeah, I think that's the way we're going to all have to move forward is that, yeah, people are just going to have to, you know, you know, the days of being able to run into a movie five minutes before it starts is just not the way it's going to work. And, um, you know, especially we have a bunch of, uh, you know, right now we have sold out Rocky Horror Picture Show screenings uh, booked. And, um, you know, now that we are going to be able to sell more tickets, uh, that is going to be a process. So, yeah, we're going to be having to ask everyone to arrive early for sure. Will that also change then? I'm glad you brought that up. So if someone's viewing the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the announcement today also that takes place uh, October 25th that says they're also removing that requirement that you have to remain seated during events like weddings. Uh, they're now allowing dancing and socializing. Will that change then how people will be able to experience things like a Rocky Horror Picture Show? Yes, uh, that does mean that people are going to be able to participate like they normally would, um, throw things around and, uh, you know, the, the usual uh, time warp and, and whatnot. So that's exciting, you know, that people, you know, we can get back to uh, the kind of fun things that we used to be able to participate in and do it safely in a room full of vaccinated people. Uh, what about the wearing of masks, though? Will it still be encouraged or is it your understanding while seated, if you're not eating or drinking, that you should still be wearing a mask? Yeah, that is our policy at the Rio, that uh, much the same like restaurants, that um, whenever you're up moving around, um, you know, in the lobby or, uh, you know, and when you're not seated, we do ask people to wear their masks um, and when they're not drinking or eating. And do you, have you been hearing from people, either staff or from people coming in, uh, concerns about, I know you mentioned some people making fake IDs or even concerns about going back, being shoulder to shoulder once again with people. It's not something that we've done for so many months. Yeah, I think that we, um, because of that, we are, we've actually chosen to not go to the full 400 seats for Rocky Horror Picture Show um, because we were anticipating that this change might happen. We've discussed it. And I think we're going to, um, you know, we've settled on 300 seats instead of 420. Um, We just kind of feel like we don't want to dive in the deep end right away um, and just sort of ease into it um, for films like, you know, that are participate that are participatory like that. Um, But uh, yeah, other other film screenings where people are quietly watching the film in the dark, uh, we probably will go to full capacity. All right. Well, good news for uh, people like yourself who have been waiting for this in a way to safely get back to that full capacity. Uh, Corrine, thanks so much for joining us. Great to talk with you. you today. Thank you. That is Corrine Lee, the CEO of the Rio Theatre. And again, that announcement made during today's COVID-19 briefing announcement. The province is getting rid of the capacity limits. That's for indoor events. It all starts on October 25th. So six days from now, that's going to apply to all sporting events, concerts, movie theatres and other indoor gatherings in B.C. where the B.C. vaccination card is being used.